Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do with their time other than meticulously studying the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And this week, Ellie's been finding out what it's like trying to do lab work while still under the effects of a general anaesthetic. It wasn't a great idea. <laughs> I'm going to give you that. In my defence... I thought routine surgery was the same thing as very minor surgery. Turns out not exactly the same thing. Yeah, and also, even if not the surgery, I think just the the whole kind of having a general anaesthetic and the fact that they don't let you operate heavy machinery for 24 hours probably means that more minor tasks you should also be a little bit wary of. I'm not a smart person. So basically, it was routine. I had a blocked tear duct, which they had to reroute through a different part of my nose. And I was like, yeah, sounds fine. Sounds like just all in a day's work really yeah just just booked ourselves a couple of casual days of lab work immediately afterwards and uh it went as well as any normal person would expect but in defense i did get you to drive me into the lab so i did not operate any heavy machinery that was very safe but arguably you probably should have just been lying on the sofa recuperating instead (laughs) to be fair i did go in realize what an epic mistake it was and then get you to bring me home and then i lay on the sofa with the cat on my face yes that was not part of the therapeutic recovery. It's just the cat will Maybe always land on your face. Maybe the purrs are healing. I have heard people say the purrs are healing. I don't know what the science is behind that, but they do feel nice just <laughs> vibrating away on your face. <laughs> They're soothing, if not medicinally useful. I, know, I mean, the thing is that the doctors are, you know, giving you stuff to keep away infection, right? So I've got eye drops, I've got like nasal spray with like some sort of antibiotic component. And then the cat's like, I think what we need here is for me to introduce cat infection to this situation. Yeah. You know what you need more of? Cat fluff. (laughs) Science of the week. Right. Well, with Ellie recovering from her operation last week, I thought I would take over the host role for the quiz again what did i get last time when you last did the quiz i think i I got like a four and a half out of five i was gonna say four did Mm, you get a half i think i got four and a half you know Mm, okay well you set the bar pretty high then the only way is up no things can only get better i think i think the only way is down (laughs) (laughs) i'm just trying to quote songs at this point question one what was notable about this week's nasa splashdown Ooh, NASA splashdown. This can't be to do with my favourite Mars rover. Nope, it's not. Ooh, NASA splashdown. Okay, did they design a spacecraft where when it splashes down into the ocean after its trip, it can be recycled? No. Well, I don't know, actually. I would assume that, yes, this bit can be, but this was just a landing pod that the astronauts come back down in, and I think those can be reused more easily. So okay, I'm going to go with no, one. I have no idea. You're actually thinking way too complicated. Was it a very splashy splashdown? No, it was in the dark. Oh, so usually it happens in the light. Yeah, for the first time since Apollo 8 in December 1968, a NASA crew arrived back on Earth at night. Is that harder to do? Because I imagine a lot of it is not done by visuals, right? It's just completely calculations. Yeah, I don't know whether it actually makes any difference to the operation or whether it just means that the crew who go and retrieve them from the ocean have to be up in the middle of the night. That's a really Um, good point, though, right? Because they're then falling into the water in the dark. In the dark. I mean, I feel like NASA astronauts probably have scarier things that happen to them, but still, it doesn't sound great to me. I think if you've survived coming back in through the atmosphere and hurtling back to Earth, landing in the dark 
in the ocean is probably the least of your concerns. Also, space is pretty dark. Yeah, exactly. So, astronauts Michael Hopkins, Victor Glover, Shannon Walker and Sochi Noguchi landed off the coast of Florida just before 3am local time on the 2nd of May, after 168 days, nearly six months, in space aboard the International Space Station. Wow, legends. Yeah. Do you know anything else about this mission? (laughs) I mean, clearly not. Look at my face. Do I know anything else? Um, I mean, that would be an interesting mission because they went out during COVID. I imagine they had to have some pretty strict protocols around going up there but they do that anyway don't they they do have to isolate for a while before going into space because of you know your regular bugs yeah i think i think they were isolating for even longer yeah before going up but you should actually know something more about this because i think we covered this mission before oh no (laughs) (laughs) so the landing and indeed the launch last November, you spacecraft built and operated by the private company SpaceX. Yes, this is that. It's that mission. Right. So when they launched in November, we talked about this because it was the first fully operational mission to the ISS made by a SpaceX vehicle. And indeed the first time made by a private company rather than by NASA. Right. No, I definitely should remember yeah. this. Okay, well, that shows that it was successful. Exactly, yeah. And the launch in November 2020 was also the first launch to the ISS from US soil since 2011, mm. when the Space Shuttle program ended. For the intervening nine years, NASA had relied on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft for getting astronauts to the ISS. Yet another notable moment of history for this mission was that astronaut Victor Glover became the first black person to hold a long-duration crew assignment on the ISS. Wow. Yeah. So all round. It's a historic yeah. mission. Historic moments. Oh. Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm very glad that it all went well. Yeah. Even and if actually, it did happen in the dark. It sounds cold and a bit miserable. The astronauts were all very smiley when they got off. <laughs> <laughs> they had the photos of them all climbing out of the capsule and they're all there like doing big thumbs up and smiling. So I think I think they were pretty pleased with it. They're better people than the rest of us, <laughs> let's be honest. They're in I don't know, like I, they're like sort of superhumans, aren't they? They choose the best of the best, and I don't know how they don't know how they manage it. You know, the other day, you know how you get sort of targeted ads on social media. You got a targeted ad asking if you wanted to be an astronaut. Yes, right. So really? Got, well, I assume it's a targeted ad. I think it's just because I look at a lot of science stuff, right? On my Instagram, it had a picture of a young woman astronaut clearly trying to appeal to the kind of demographic. And it was saying that the European Space Agency is opening applications for astronauts, and I was like barking up the entirely wrong is, tree there mate i was going to say this isn't the point at which you're going to tell me that you snuck in an application without telling me i mean does that seem like the kind of thing i do i was just no. basically saying oh it sounds a bit dark <laughs> <laughs> no i just think that as smart as these targeted ads are they're not that smart no you like space you don't want to be in space it's almost as if instagram haven't listened to the podcast how rude how rude number two which species was announced as scientifically the most Instagrammable bird this week? Well, I know this because I spend quite a lot of time on Instagram. Yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> it's the frogmouth. It is a frogmouth. Do you know what a frogmouth is? It's a type of bird, but I have absolutely no idea what it's closely related to because it's a really strange looking bird. Yeah, it's your it's your kind of animal, isn't it? Sort of yes, ugly ug- cute. Ugly cute. I yeah. love ugly cute. You know, I used to have a picture of a frogmouth that my mum cut out of a newspaper just because she was like, you're going to like this. And I had it stuck at my desk when I was doing my PhD. <laughs> no relation to me at all. It was just there with its little face. 
just in case I was feeling sad. <laughs> so frogmouths are nocturnal birds related to nightjars, which we get in the UK. Mm. Now, we've seen nightjars in Thetford Forest, but when you see them flying around at dusk, it's not really the best way to see their defining features. Like all nocturnal animals, frogmouths have large eyes to capture as much light as possible. And I think that's really the trigger for the cute factor. But when flying at night, frogmouths hunt insects on the wing. So they also have very large mouths with a wide gape, which when shut is still pretty obvious and tends to look a little bit grumpy. Yeah, they do look so grumpy. So you can see where the sort of ugly cute factor is coming into this they're very relatable i feel you know yeah because they they always look a little bit like they've woken up on the wrong side of the bed yes they've got a bit of a human expression about them so doctors katia toms and gregor hain laxenring from the university of constance in germany used an algorithm to calculate the aesthetic appeal of over twenty-three thousand bird images shared from nine large photography accounts on instagram based on the number of likes the image received and the number of people which each image was likely to have been viewed by In general, the most popular species tended to be colourful birds with some kind of decorative plumage, such as a crest or a crown, like pigeons, turacos and hoopoos. Ah, okay. Do you mean like fancy pigeons? Because I know a lot of people who don't like pigeons. Yes, I I did think when I was looking at this, like people are going to listen to that and think, what, a wood pigeon? That's not colourful. No, a lot of tropical pigeons are very, very bright and colourful. So you get sort of beautiful bright green ones. I mean, actually, I think our pigeons are quite pretty if you view them up close. I love our pigeons. They have a sort of shimmery, purpley kind of green blue look to them. Yeah, which is actually quite cool. But Some of the tropical species have that kind of look all over their body, which Uh, is more instantly visually appealing. They're like the Kim Kardashians of the bird world. Yeah. More Instagrammable. So that's what people are generally going for. At the other end of the spectrum, a lot of shorebirds like oyster catchers and sandpipers were unpopular, along with storks and vultures. Okay, vultures, I think there's a sort of cultural aspect there. Shorebirds, that's interesting, because some of them have very funky beaks. Yeah, I found that a bit strange. The authors suggested that it was because the shorebirds were often pictured poking around in sand and mud and picking out worms. And so they're not sort of striking a nice pose like a a bird on a branch. That's fair. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I thought it was a bit unfair on oyster catchers. I think they're pretty funky. (laughs) You used to get Instagram and just like every single picture of an oyster catcher and nothing else. Yeah, and vultures. Oh yeah, obviously. But at the top of the tree was the frogmouth. Not colourful, although elaborately camouflaged. Not crested, but big-eyed and looking totally dumb with you waking him up in the middle of the day for a photo shoot. Well, you know, this sort of doesn't surprise me because people love a blobfish as well. Yeah. Also looks done with life. Yeah. And kind of grumpy. I feel like just people relate. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? So as an interesting side note, what do you think the most popular bird colour was? Ooh. You've got a choice, mm. broadly speaking, across the plumage. Red, yellow, green or blue? So a frog mouth is none of those? Nope. I'm going to go with red. I think it's striking. You know, you'd notice it on your Instagram feed. You'd think so, right? That was what I thought it was going to be. This is for a subset of birds. So you noted that frog mouths wouldn't be included in this. This was a subset of birds that were kind of broadly one of those colours. Mm. It was blue. Interesting. I mean, bluebirds are very pretty. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought you'd notice it quite so much. No, but apparently in other contexts, humans have been shown to have a general preference for blue objects, from coloured squares through to furniture and clothing. Supposedly, because blue is often linked to good things like clear skies and clean water. 
Oh, that sounds a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I buy that without looking into the literature on it. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those just so stories a little bit. Maybe I'm being harsh, but you know how sometimes you see a preference in what people like and then you kind of make up a story as to why that might be? Yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe I'm being harsh. Yeah, but also I just didn't think that that blue was that popular. Is it? I mean, you don't get that many bright blue sofas, do you? Like... <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. Clothes, I think they're very popular, yeah. but that's because blue goes with a lot of stuff, I think. Yeah, it's it's more to do with its adaptability rather than... But maybe we think it goes with a lot of stuff because we like it so much. Oh, good point. Good point. Who knows? I'm actually wearing a blue top and a pair of blue dungarees right now. Yeah, and I'm also wearing a blue t-shirt, so... Okay, point proven. Yeah. Question three. What has been found in the mud at the bottom of the Southern Ocean? Oh, I'm doing so badly today. What has been found in the mud? I mean, I imagine lots of things. Do yeah. I have to get the exact I, thing you want? Or can I say like, you know, some sort of annelid worm? You're Okay, I was going to say, you're not just going to get a point for saying lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, historically, many things have been found in the mud at the bottom of the Southern Ocean. But specifically, one thing which is quite interesting this week. Oh, goodness, right. Um, and it wasn't an animal. It wasn't an animal. It wasn't a live animal? Could it be a fossil? Uh, closer. Okay. Oh, gosh. Right, so I don't think, from the look on your face, that it's something horrific, like a big store of plastic that's ended up no. stuck there. Hmm. A dinosaur? No. I have no idea. A small green rock with a big story to tell. Ooh. Mm. Tell me. The rock was a piece of green quartz aronite, a type of sandstone, which had been carried out to sea by an iceberg and dropped into the deep when the berg melted. Not so unusual, you might think. But what's interesting about this rock is where it came from. Researchers, led by Professor Christine Sidaway from Colorado College, found that the stone originated from the Ellsworth-Whitmore mountain range in western Antarctica, about 1,300 kilometres from where the stone was found. I sometimes forget how big antarctica is because you say southern ocean and then you just said the stone came from antarctica and i'm like yeah same place yeah (laughs) yeah that still may not sound that surprising because big icebergs do break off antarctica float hundreds of miles out to sea and slowly melt along the way and so it seems believable that this stone could have been carried out like that Mm. but the site where the stone was found is 1300 kilometers from its source not 1300 kilometers from antarctica So most of the distance from the Ellsworth Mountains to the sampling site is currently covered by ice flows, and the composition of the small stone makes it extremely unlikely that it could have survived being carried within a glacier for that kind of distance. Interesting. That's because, as the researchers note, while a rock frozen into the ice, as it would be in an iceberg, basically just stays put and floats... Glaciers move around and break and crush rocks and would, in particular, destroy anything as soft as a sandstone pebble underneath them as they're transporting it across the land. Right. But this actually tells us something really interesting. The researchers couldn't just tell where the rock was from, but they could also tell when it was from. Oh, nice. So the depth in the sediment core where the rock was found was dated to around three million years ago, a period known as the Pliocene. And that's the last time that the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was over 400 parts per million, the same as it is today. Right, okay, so can this tell us something about climate change? Exactly. Mm. It was already thought that global temperatures might have been two or three degrees warmer back then, with much higher sea levels. 
and the little sandstone rock suggests something else. Although most of the distance from where it was found back to Ellsworth Mountains was covered by ice, this is part of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, mm. which covers a large area of sea. So the edge of the Antarctic landmass is actually much, much closer to the mountains. So the theory is that in the warm Pliocene temperatures, most of this ice sheet didn't actually exist and was just open ocean. So the rock could have been caught in a glacier close to the mountains, which quickly formed an iceberg and then floated most of the 1,300 kilometres out to where it melted and the stone sank. So basically through a gap which now doesn't exist. Exactly. A big sea that's now covered in solid ice. This is so cool. This is one of the things that I teach undergrads about. So when I take them for supervisions for their lectures, we've been talking about Antarctica and how you can tell how the ice sheets used to look. And there's been research done looking at sort of ecological communities, so groups of species that you find at different points in Antarctica and what that can tell us about which seaways were opened up. Mm. So I'm 100% nicking this and sending it to them because this is super useful. Yeah, I think this is actually one of the seaways that you were talking about because we were looking at a map together a couple of weeks ago of the landmass under the frozen yeah, Antarctica. Yeah, exactly. And actually, whereas we think of it as being a single big continent, it's actually a massive archipelago of islands and some of the basically the two different sides of the Antarctic are connected by a seaway this is at one end of that seaway that's so interesting yeah oh I'm stealing this as learning material amazing pretty cool so there are two things about this in terms of our interpretation of the past and the future one is that it suggests that the West Antarctic ice sheet actually reformed pretty quickly over the last three million years since the world cooled down after the Pliocene but on the other hand it also suggests that when CO2 levels were last over 400 parts per million and the world got hot, the ice sheet also disappeared. Mm. So this could be where we're heading under yes. climate change. That's really interesting. I mean, it's one of those things, it's tricky when you look at past histories of climate change to sort of decide how much that's an analogue of what we've got going on now, right? Because the heating happened at a different time scale. But the important thing is that actually in general, in the past, it happened at a much slower yeah. time scale. So generally, if things melted then, you kind of think, mm, they're probably going to melt now and yeah. it's probably going to happen faster. Exactly. We're, we're just in a bit of a lag stage because actually it's it's heating up so quick. Like that's a lot of ice to melt. Yeah. So it hasn't had time to melt, but it's going to. Wow. Kind of we, we say that this is like a lighthearted podcast where we're not talking about the C word and we're like, but climate change, yeah, that's the a different other kind C of C word. word. <laughs> <laughs> That one's fine. That one's totally on the table. <laughs> Number four. What new method have scientists proposed which might help to remove microplastics from the environment? This is a type of bacteria that has been discovered which can essentially digest microplastics. Not quite. Ooh. No. I thought I'd seen this article. You might have done, but I think I think at a glance that's probably what you almost what you expect to read. Yeah. Because I think we've covered this on the podcast before, actually. Bacteria that can digest plastic and sort of remove it from the environment. This is bacterial sticky tape. Ooh. Oh, that's mm. funky. How does that work? So, new research led by Dr. Sylvia Lang Liu 
from the Hong Kong Polytechnic University has found a way to use the naturally sticky properties of bacteria to create sellotape-like nets, which could be used to capture microplastics found in the water. That is so cool. Yeah. So the team have created a biofilm from Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is able to collect and group microplastics, causing them to sink out of the water. The really cool thing is that there's a release mechanism, which enables the scientists to release the mass of plastic from the biofilm so that it can be recycled. The idea is that these films could be used in wastewater treatment plants to catch microplastics before they even enter the environment. That's incredible. Yeah. So I suppose they kind of work in tandem with the digesting technology that we discussed before, with the plastic eating bacteria cleaning up what's already in the environment and the new biofilm preventing new stuff from entering the environment. So bacteria are doing it for themselves. That is just amazing. Do you think that this is something which is going to be put into practice anytime soon or is it still quite theoretical? It's not theoretical. They've they've done it, but it is preliminary. So the bacteria that they used is actually harmful to people. Ah. So probably not something they can roll out on a large scale. And the experiments were done in a lab mm-hmm. in controlled conditions rather than in an actual sewage plant. But the potential is there to find other bacteria, perhaps some that are already in the environment, which also form biofilms and can be used to manufacture this on a large scale in a similar kind of way. That is so cool. I mean, you just think about the innovations around the world. Just Scientists come up with incredible new ideas. And I'm sitting in a lab playing with beetles, essentially. Do you ever just feel like you're like, well, I'm doing the wrong kind of science? Yeah, I'm just, just fiddling. <laughs> I just think this is brilliant because it's one of those things where like, just imagine if we could actually get all of the plastic out of the environment or not even all of it just most of it yeah because the thing is that like microplastics are everywhere right microplastics can be anything from the threads that come out of our nylon clothing to you know more obvious things like bits of broken up packaging yeah and micro beads that put in cosmetic products and that kind of thing yeah exactly so i mean it's just totally pervasive if we could work out ways to just remove this before it even gets into the environment because once it's already in our seas and oceans i mean you can't do this at that enormous scale but if you could stop it once it gets into the sewers amazing yeah brilliant isn't it question five which important measurement turned 100 years old this week Ooh, Celsius. Good guess, but no. Wait, okay. Um, <laughs> let me think of another one. I'm going one to guess of my favourite measurements. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's something with someone's name. No, actually. Ooh, okay, meters. <laughs> um, the metric system. <laughs> meters is is sort of the right scale. Mean sea level. Oh, oh, I'm barking up entirely the wrong tree. Yeah, not not a unit of measurement, but a measurement standard. Right. What did they do before mean sea level? Yeah, I was quite surprised by this. So mean sea level is something that we sort of take for granted, not because we use it very much on its own, but because we measure the height of so many things, like mountains and buildings, and even changes in the sea level itself Yeah. relative to it. So on the 1st of May 1915, the Ordnance Survey began a six-year project based in the lighthouse hut on the south pier of Newlyn Harbour in Cornwall, to measure the height of mean sea level. This had been done before, but Newlyn's location turned out to be quite critical. The pier is built on granite, which is very stable, and the harbour arm reaches out into the ocean, meaning that it has fewer swells caused by the currents close to shore. So how do you think they recorded the sea level? Oh, 
before they had mean sea level or no, at no, the time for, when they ha, how did they record the sea level in order to calculate mean sea level well that's really difficult because the sea goes up and down if you're at shore yeah uh did they test it at lots of times of the year and then take an average basically yeah but not just lots of times continuously oh wow yeah so they had a hole in the floor in the heart through which a float on the surface of the ocean could be connected to a chart recording gauge which continuously monitored changes in sea level with every tide and after six years of observation the mean sea level from the 1st of May 1915 to the 30th of April 1921, was found to be 4.751 metres below the floor of the hut. Ah. And that became the standard for mean sea level. That's incredible because these days you could input every single value into a computer and you could really quickly calculate a mean. Yeah. Back then you couldn't do that. No. Think how you know computationally that heavy that would be on your brain. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. And... I don't know, because I'm, I'm imagining one of those charts a bit like they used to record like seismic activity, where it's kind of a pencil drawing on a on a line. Like, presumably it must have been a bit of paper that's slowly moving so that they get yeah. a continuous tracker. And then what, you have this six-year-long piece of paper. That's that they, insane. <laughs> that wow, they then I'd love to know more about that. a regression line through, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that is amazing effort. Yeah. And in some ways I was surprised by this, because... You know, we now take mapping so much for granted with the use of satellites and GPS. But I always sort of assume that something like mean sea level height would actually have been determined earlier, maybe in the 19th century. But no, 100 years ago this week, the accepted standard for sea level was fixed and we've been measuring everything else relative to that ever since. That's incredible. I mean, we do take it for granted, right? Yeah. Every time you say, oh, so, you know, how high is that mountain? Or, you know, we talk about sea level change. We don't think about these folks yeah. who calculated it Set for the us. Set standard for it. So, at the end of that round, you got a pretty stunning one out of five. I might have to eat my hat. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. The only way is up, is it? From four or well, four and a half. Next time, I think the only way is up. Yeah, next time. Does this mean I have to stop mocking you? Yes, it does. Because you now have the same range of results as I have. Oh, yeah, because last week you got four and a half, didn't you? Yes, I did. So we both have anywhere between one and four and a half. We've never had a zero. No. And we've never had a five. Oh, this is why we're so well matched for each other. <laughs> we're both equally unpredictable and mediocre. Yeah. In two goes, you've fixed the same range as me. Oh, and are you going to do this again so that I can redeem myself or am I back No, in the I think we leave it like this. Oh. Forevermore. <laughs> Journal Club. Okay, what's your paper this week? Well, this week I've turned up with another listener submission. Ooh. Yeah, the wonderful Emma got in touch this week to suggest that we feature a fabulous new piece of dolphin research. Mm, love a dolphin. Yeah, the thing that the listeners need to know about Emma, though, is that she's the only person I've ever met who doesn't like dolphins. That's true. Yeah. Oh. She's a marine geographer. She basically loves everything about the sea, particularly whales. But she just doesn't trust dolphins. I, on the other hand, and you, and basically everyone else I've ever met, are big fans of dolphins. See, she thinks that this research backs up her viewpoint, and I think it backs up mine. 
So it just shows in life, you always look at new information through the lens of your pre-existing biases. Ah, yeah. yeah. The paper in question is by King et al. And it's called Cooperation-Based Concept Formation in Male Bottlenose Dolphins. So we know that humans are good at classifying each other based on social relationships. We recognise people as belonging to certain categories, like fans of a particular sports team or having the same political leanings as us. Sometimes this can make things quite ugly, but in essence, it's us kind of categorising people. In our minds, we also put people into meaningful groups and change the way that we behave towards them accordingly. So like we have different levels of friendships. Maybe you have your best friends, your work friends and the people that you only hang out with when you're doing specific activities. As one of our friends once described, it's like a London tube map. I love that analogy. <laughs> yes, exactly. She has her zone one friends. Yeah. And all the way out to your zone six friends. Yeah. And if you do something bad, you get relegated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we never did find out where we were on that map, did we? No, she, I, don't, I don't think she would tell anyone where they were. She would just joke about where other people were. <laughs> I love that. But exactly. It is quite a good way of thinking about a friendship. Literally a friendship circle, actually. Yeah. And if you want to be really nerdy about the underground, you can even put people at stations that you do and don't particularly like. <laughs> yeah. On your favourite line or not favourite exactly. line. <laughs> so that's quite a specific example that probably only applies to that friend in particular. But we know that many other species can classify other individuals as belonging or not belonging to groups based on simple factors like whether they're related to them and whether they live in the same area. But can any species classify their allies into different hierarchical levels like we do? Now, species of particular interest are dolphins because lots of great research has shown that they have complex social lives. So can dolphins classify relationships based on different levels of past and present social interactions? Ooh. What do you think? Yes. I'm going to go with yes, because mm. they're pretty smart and yeah. they're pretty social. Yeah. This is what Dr. Stephanie King and colleagues set to find out by studying a population of Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins in Shark Bay in Australia. The dolphins in Shark Bay have been observed for 30 years, so the researchers have really good data on which dolphins have relationships with each other. Now, you may have heard it said that two things in life are certain, death and taxes, but another certainty is that when there's a potential for sex, animals will do pretty much anything to make it happen. <laughs> In these dolphins, males will work together to gain exclusive access to fertile females and make sure that no rival males swoop in and woo her away. I'm saying woo. As will quickly become apparent, she doesn't seem to have a lot of choice in the matter. Mm. Which, by the way, is one reason why Emma doesn't like dolphins. She thinks that they're not very respectful. Yeah, okay, I can see that argument. In the paper, the researchers describe three levels of alliances that male dolphins form to help each other get the ladies. There is first what they call first order alliances, where two or three male dolphins work together to find and corral females. Then there are second order alliances made of larger groups of up to 14 males, which work to defend the corralled female from being herded away by rival males. And then sometimes there are even larger groups of multiple second order alliances, which help further to stop a female from being snatched away. They're referred to as third order alliances. Some very sneaky behaviour going on. Yeah. There. That's a lot of dolphins involved as well. I know. <laughs> Considering that potentially all of those males are competition, 
That's a lot of social manoeuvring. I know, exactly. They're strong wingmen. Mm. A couple of important things to know here are that the individual dolphins within second order alliances, that's those groups of up to 14 males, stay stable for decades. So those 14 males are likely to be the same individuals over a long time period. However, dolphins regularly switch partners in the first order alliances. The individuals in the first order alliances come from the wider pool of the second order alliances. Okay. So basically, it's like you've got a big group of friends who you've had for years and you often go out together, but sometimes you'll just invite a couple of them out to the club with you and it's not always the same couple. Yeah, I see. This is already very cool because we can see how complex the dolphins' social lives are, but this raises some other interesting questions. How do dolphins remember who are in their first and second order alliance groups? And how do dolphins classify the relationships within these alliance groups? So to answer these questions, the researchers used those 30 years of observational data on the dolphins' social behaviours to understand which dolphins were in each other's first, second and third order alliance groups. And they then ran experiments where they played whistles from individual dolphins underwater while recording the dolphins' behaviour from above using a drone-mounted camera. Mm, clever. Dolphins' whistles are fascinating. Every dolphin has a different whistle that they can make. So it's a signature, essentially. Yeah. That one dolphin will make that whistle and no one else will. So the researchers could play the whistle that they knew belonged to a particular dolphin and then record the behaviour of the other dolphins that they knew were in that dolphin's alliance groups from, you know, that 30 years of observational data. It's basically like a scientist subtly going into a room where your friends and acquaintances are gathered and playing a recording of your voice and seeing who reacts. <laughs> yeah. They found that dolphins reacted more strongly to second order allies than third order allies, even in cases where they had similar social bond strength. And that's basically a metric that looks at how good friends they are and how much time they actually spend together okay. rather than like literally what roles they play when trying to herd females. So maybe that's something that you kind of broadly expect. But really interestingly, the dolphins didn't react any more strongly to current first order allies or allies that they more often paired up with in first order alliances than they did any other second order allies. So the pool of second order really is actually basically their closest friends and and it's almost like it's random who they pick to get no, who go it's into... not random oh, that's the thing okay so there's a difference between second order allies so that group who are around for decades and who they pick sort of close friends with that they spend tend to spend more time with so they do actually have preferences from that larger group of second order allies okay for individuals that they're more likely to have frequent first order alliances with but but they the don't fact, respond to them differently. Yeah, so the fact that you might choose a couple of individuals from the second order alliance more regularly to be in your first order alliance, and therefore you could say are sort of better current friends, Yeah, that doesn't make a difference for whether you're going to react to them more. Ah, okay. Basically, it means that social bond strength, that is how good friends they are now, didn't influence likelihood of reacting to a dolphin's whistle. Dolphins responded most to the other dolphins which have been part of their cooperative group over a long time period. They characterise their alliances based on shared cooperative history rather than short-term friendships. Ah, okay. So they value long-term commitments. Basically, if one of those steadfast long-term companions calls, you come swimming. 
Now, the researchers suggest that these alliances based on cooperative behaviour probably also occurred in early human societies. And crucially, this research shows that this method of classifying others based on their past cooperation isn't just something that humans do. Mm. In dolphin societies too, individuals reap the benefits of consistently having each other's backs when the going gets tough. Very cool. But I kind of see where both you and Emma are coming from on this. I was going to say, back to the chat that Emma and I were having, right? So Emma thinks that this is evidence that dolphins are sneaky because they care more about which lads have helped them track down the ladies than who their friends are. I think that this shows that dolphins are loyal to their long-term compadres and aren't swayed by who is currently flavour of the month. What's your take? Um, So I was, I was going to say the same thing as you for kind of, for your perspective. But the other thing is that for emma's argument like also just this is all about the like ganging up to get females which is yeah it's not good not 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 great behavior so i don't know that they're definitely sneaky but they're also clever with it and it's i don't know it's just really cool to see this kind of this level of complex behavior in non-human animals and i know we've kind of got to the stage where as we learn more and more about the other great apes elephants parrots dolphins we learn more about what they're capable of but it still just blows my mind every time something something new comes out about what animals are able to do it's so cool and i love that this is combining really long-term observational data with really high-tech technology which wouldn't have been available to a researcher when the observational data started 30 years yeah. ago. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I also like the fact that it's research that's done in the wild. It, it's the animals in natural scenarios looking at their actual behaviour and how they respond to stimuli that they're given in their normal environment rather than just like an animal in a lab being asked to kind of press buttons and forcing it to sort of translate into what we understand rather than being in its own environment where it's adapted to everything. Yeah. So whether you agree with Emma, as she said, dolphins are the football lads of the sea, or whether you agree with me that this shows that they're just loyal to their steadfast companions, it's very cool. It is very cool. Anyway, what have you got for me this week? Well, given that you did uh, so well on the actual quiz, I'm going to oh, start. I'm going to start with another spot quiz for you. What are the biggest threats in global conservation? The biggest threats in global conservation? Uh, well, probably poaching, invasive species. Yeah. Climate change. Yep. Oh, gosh. Habitat loss. Yep. And, and this is based, I think, on the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, is what I'm thinking of. Pollution? Yes. Ah, five yep. out of five. Five out of five. Yeah. So these are often considered to be sort of broadly categorised the major threats um, to conservation. It used to be known as kind of the big four, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and then climate change came along and kind of added a fifth. But the relative importance of each of those depends a bit on which species you're interested in conserving and where in the world you're working. Yeah. So, for example, in the UK, habitat loss is probably the major threat to a lot of species, whereas for a lot of marine species, we might be more concerned about overfishing or overharvesting. In Australia, the big threat is invasive animals. 
rats, cats, foxes, rabbits, goats, hordes of placental mammals arrived in Australia along with European settlers and set about eating their way through the native plants and animals, which had no natural defences or avoidance behaviours for these introduced species. Mm. For the small, ground-dwelling marsupials, the cats and foxes presented a particular problem. As these species are adapted to hunting small, ground-dwelling animals, but ones which normally try to get away. In addition, cats and foxes do really well around people, so anywhere that humans spread, they tended to follow. Yeah. So after Europeans arrived, numbers of native marsupials plummeted, and many have gone extinct across large parts of Australia. But in recent years, concerted efforts have been made to try and reintroduce bandicoots, betongs, bilbies, donarts, gliders, numbats, possums, fascogolies, wallabies, with varying success. Mm. Lots of releases are done into fenced areas where all of the non-native animals have been removed. But these projects suffer from scale because the fenced area has to be large enough to support a population of the marsupials, but can never realistically cover large parts of the country again. Another approach is to try and control the non-native mammals by shooting or poisoning foxes and cats to reduce their numbers enough that the native species have a chance of surviving and breeding successfully. But this is also fraught with issues, not least the need for ongoing control to keep numbers down, because new foxes and cats will always move into the cleared area and breed well with less competition from others. And this is costly, but it also means a lot of killing. Yeah, it's not good for PR, is it? No, it doesn't look great. And this also has the same issue of it's simply unworkable over large scales. So in response to this, another proposed approach in conservation is to test whether vulnerable native animals, such as these small marsupials, which have no natural fear of non-native predators, can be taught to avoid them. Right. This seems a bit mad, but the idea is that animals are capable of learning from both positive and negative experiences. So if a marsupial can be taught to be fearful of foxes and cats, it might naturally start to avoid them and thus become better at living alongside them. Oh, I can't see how this is not going to have ridiculous methods. (laughs) Why do you think I chose it? (laughs) So, in 2012... Catherine Mosby and colleagues from the University of Adelaide and the Arid Recovery Project in Australia set out to test whether greater bilbies could be trained to avoid predators. Side note, if you're not familiar with bilbies, take a moment to image search them. They are adorable. Do it. Do it now. Pause the but podcast. But then come back to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, is this going to be a situation where they just traumatise a load of bilbies? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> To test the effect of training bilbies, the team set up a couple of controlled experiments. They caught bilbies living in a predator-free, fenced reserve and exposed half of them to avoidance training. Can you guess what the avoidance training entailed? Maybe it's like a cuddly toy fox chucked at them. Close. A researcher dressed as a fox running at them. No, that's further away. (laughs) The researchers mixed up a delightful potion containing a mixture of cat urine and faecal matter, which had been broken down in water and sieved to create, I quote, a pungent liquid which could be administered through a spray bottle. Throw away the sieve, burn it with fire. (laughs) Tasty. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Just like get a a bottle of like, you know, spray water or something and then like it's actually a mix of cat urine and faecal matter yeah you'd hope nobody would use that just to cool down in the summer like oh what's this accidentally water your plants with it (laughs) 
This potion was sprayed onto the net used to catch the bilbies, as well as onto the handler's gloves and a fleece bag. Isn't being a conservation scientist glamorous? Oh, so glamorous. Imagine coming home from a night's work, having spent 10 hours wearing gloves soaked in uh, cat juice. (laughs) Miscellaneous cat juice. Miscellaneous cat juice. Carrying equipment also soaked in cat juice. (laughs) Would all the cats in the local area just be like, oh, it smells great? Yeah, I don't know. surrounded by Do they come and fight you? Do they come and try and mate with you? Like, (laughs) no idea. Anyway, when a bilby was caught in the net, it was immediately attacked by a cat carcass held by another person. I'm sorry, what? A a dead cat? A dead cat. Which was sprayed with cat urine. Oh, you guessed ahead. Yes, they'd also sprayed that with cat urine. (laughs) Um, So they they had cats that they'd removed as part of a control program and they froze the carcasses and then defrosted them just before they wanted to use them. And they removed the claws and the teeth so that they couldn't accidentally damaged the bilby in the attack but yeah they had the cat carcass that they then sprayed with cat stuff as well no words wow okay so after the bilby was caught in the net the cat was forcibly moved onto the bilby in an attempt to simulate a cat pouncing on prey so they chucked the cat at the bilby they chucked the cat at well i think i don't think they chucked it at it i think one of them held the cat and literally sort of you know just shoved, the bil- sho- bothered the bilby yeah shoved it onto the bilby as though the like made attacking motions with it after the attack the bilby was then put into the potion soaked bag for weighing and measuring and oh. just for good measure when it was released the bilby was chased out of the bag by the cat carcass and two more sprays of the potion were aimed in their direction this is so messed up i mean <laughs> I, don't get me wrong i understand the logic but but my god is this messed up <laughs> It's so traumatising for the bilbies. And me. So, half of the bilbies underwent this training, and half were caught and weighed and measured, but using equipment which was delightfully not soaked in cat potion, and they were not subjected to the mock attack. All of the bilbies were radio-tagged so that they could be relocated and their behaviour tracked. What they found was quite interesting. So all seven of the trained bilbies changed burrows more frequently than the untrained bilbies. And this was assumed to be a defence mechanism, making it harder for predators to track them down to the same burrow. So this was sort of taken as a bit of evidence that they might have been responding to the training by being a bit more flighty. Right. The trained bilbies also moved further between burrows than the naive bilbies, averaging over a kilometre compared to just 160 metres. And the trained animals selected burrows with more entrances, i.e. places that were easier to escape from. That is really interesting. Cool, isn't it? Yeah. So it does suggest that they didn't do a kind of before and after, but you have got a control group and an intervention group, and you're finding a difference in behaviour, which is quite cool. (laughs) Which might just be because they were traumatised, but you know. No, but it's it's really interesting, right? Because you're seeing these behaviours which could be quite protective. And and actually, you you kind of want them to be a bit traumatised, because the point is, like, you want them to know to be scared of cats they need to not trust the cats yeah yeah so the researchers then tested the bilby's response to a mock attack where they sprayed cat spray at the burrow entrance and dug around at the entrance hole the following night all seven of the trained bilby's changed burrow whereas none of the untrained bilby's moved that is so interesting Mm. so that counts as a successful intervention it does so far okay so all this is looking pretty good with the bilbies suggesting that they have learned that cat equals bad. Yeah. Well, a couple of years later, the team tried a second experiment 
which is reported in the same paper, so I get to include it in one episode, where 20 bilbies were moved from a predator-free zone into an unfenced area where cats and foxes were present. Once again, half of these animals were exposed to the same predator training upon capture, and half were not. After three months, all of the females which could be found showed signs of breeding. So they were surviving, and they seemed to be doing okay. Four months after release, most of the animals were still alive, and the same mock attack of digging at the burrow entrance was conducted. But this time, there was no difference in the response of the trained and the untrained bilbies. Some of them moved burrow, some didn't. That didn't depend on which group they were in. But these aren't the same bilbies from the first It's not the same bilbies from the first thing, but it's a different set of bilbies that have had the same training. And actually a slightly larger sample size. And after six months, nine of the ten trained bilbies and eight of the ten untrained bilbies were still alive, with only one animal having been killed by a cat. Well, that's good. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, 19 months after release, the bilby population died out. Oh, no. And it was thought that cats and foxes were the cause. Okay, so when the experiment was done again, it seems like actually that traumatising training didn't really have an effect. And then when you follow the study through, the bilbies didn't survive. Yeah. So it might be that the that the training did have some kind of short-term benefit because the first study was only conducted over the course of a couple of weeks. Mm. So for a couple of weeks, it did seem to kind of change their behaviour. But in the longer term it didn't seem that it benefited them either in terms of changing their behaviour and certainly not in terms of long-term survival. So you need to traumatise bilbies on the regular, basically? Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't think that's what they were hoping for in terms of a, a cost-effective outcome. <laughs> so I would sum this up as a nice idea, a robust test, but probably not the best option for bilby conservationists. Hey, you know what? Though? You need to try everything. Exactly. It's better that you that you try and test and you know the answer than you just carry on guessing. And that is the great thing about conservation evidence, right? Is that you could go on the website now and you could check out what works and that one's going to be put down as not successful. Yes, I think so. <laughs> but now we know is the point. Exactly. Animal etymologies. For today's animal etymology, I'm going to return to what I think I can safely say is an animal we both think is pretty damn cool. It has even featured on the podcast before. What do you think Lassiorhinus latifrons is? Mm. If I start giving away what the constituent parts of the name mean, you'll just get it immediately. The genus name that is the first part of the name is a literal translation of its common name, Lassiorhinus. Oh, where else would you see rhine? Well, I'm thinking rhinoceros. Mm. Do you know what it means in that? Uh, is it nose? It is nose. Okay. I also recognise lassio as well, but I don't know what that means either. Shall I give it away? I think so. Okay. So lassio rhinus comes from two Greek words. Lassios, meaning shaggy. Hmm. Shaggy uh, nose. Yeah. Or... Hairy nose. Yeah. Hairy nosed wombat. Yes. <gasps> Exactly. So, lasios means shaggy in Greek. Hres is a word meaning nose in Greek. Latus means wide in Latin. And frons means forehead in Latin. So, essentially, it's the shaggy-nosed, wide forehead animal. Oh, okay. And it's actually the southern hairy-nosed wombat. 
one of the most beloved of Australian marsupials. We've got a marsupial theme going on today without realising. So on the podcast before, we've discussed how wombats have cubic poo caused by their intestinal muscles squeezing it using different levels of force on each surface, and also how they use their rock-hard bums for defence and burrowing. Their bums also feature in their flirting behaviour, where courting couples will bite each other on the bum and run off, waiting for the other to reciprocate. Mm. How romantic. (laughs) Basically... Wombats are wonderful little tanks with fascinating behaviour and time is never wasted if you're reading about wombats or watching videos of them. Or at least that's my take on life. So now you know the etymology of the scientific name for the southern hairy-nosed wombat. But do you know how they got the common name wombat? No, I don't. It comes from the word wombat in Daruk, which is an Aboriginal language from the region of Australia, which is now Sydney. So, there you have it. The Wombat. Great name, even better bum. Isolation Recommendations So, our next round of lockdown restrictions don't ease for a couple of weeks. Have you got any isolation recommendations for people? I have. This week, I'm going to suggest that you all check out the programme for Pint of Science. This is a worldwide science festival which usually takes place in public venues in cities across the world. But you know, because corona, this year it's online. Because corona is just a phrase we use quite a bit because I once got an email um, from somebody who was informing me that a science communication event was cancelled and the title was just cancelled because corona. (laughs) So um, for... Ever since, that has been our excuse for most things, because corona. Anyway, the fact that it's online means that you can enjoy all that psychomy goodness without even leaving your bed. Ideal. So, all you have to do is head over to pintofscience.co.uk and you can find the programme for this year's UK event, running from the 17th to the 20th of May. All the talks and events run live on Pint of Science's YouTube page, so they're all free. And there are six themes covering everything from astronomy to neuroscience and robotics to zoology. And, sorry about this, but sound the self-promotion klaxon again, because I have no shame. (laughs) I am taking part in one of the events, and it would be really lovely to have you there. On Tuesday the 18th of May at 6pm, I'm chairing a panel discussion called Climate Change and Conservation After the COVID-19 Pandemic. What's next? And our panellists are two fantastic Cambridge University academics, Dr Chris Sambrook, who is a conservation social scientist, and Dr Hugh Hunt, who is a climate change engineer. Basically, they come at the topic from very different standpoints, so there's definitely going to be some very lively debate on the night around the various merits and pitfalls of traditional ways to decrease carbon dioxide emissions compared to big blue sky technologies that can literally remove the CO2 from the atmosphere. Sounds pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. Hopefully you can come to that, but do check out the whole programme. There are so many really cool talks and panels on and the whole thing is designed to be accessible to anyone who is interested, regardless of whether you have any science training at all. And I feel like this is actually kind of something that's good that's come out of the pandemic in that, you know, talking about it being accessible to everyone, it used to be that these things were only accessible to the people living within 
striking distance of, of whichever city the events are happening in. Whereas now, actually, they genuinely are available to anybody who's got an internet connection. Yeah, exactly. And not even just based on location. A lot of science communication events used to be inaccessible to people who couldn't physically leave their house, for example. Now, yeah, as long as you've got an internet connection, you don't even need to be free at the time. It's going to be kept on the YouTube page afterwards. So it makes it so much more accessible. So I think this kind of stuff is really cool. And I do actually hope that whilst we will be doing a lot of science communication in person in the future, we can keep some of this online stuff because it just means that more people can get involved. Yeah, I really hope so. Well, that's all we've got time for today, but you can always get in touch with us between shows by emailing lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com or following us on Twitter at Lockdown Science or Instagram at Lockdown Science Podcast. You don't know how much I love a listener submission or just a nice email, so please do send them our way. I'm a student. I know the joy of procrastination. When you've next got a deadline and need a way to waste time, just send us an email instead. And if that doesn't take enough time, you can also be an absolute legend and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a cheeky five-star rating for the podcast. It helps others to find it and we just love to see it. Now, unfortunately, this is actually the last episode of Series 2. So it'd be awesome if you could tell all your science nerd friends about the podcast so that we've got lots of new listeners ready for Series 3 to kick off in a few weeks' time. Basically, we've got a holiday booked, so we're going to take a breather, but we will keep on adding bookmarks to any fun and weird science we find in the meantime so that we're ready to share it all with you when we're back next month. In the meantime, if you find some fun science that you think deserves its place on the show, email it over to us or DM us with it. It will get a mention. Or if it's research you've published yourself, even better. Yeah, we love it when people tell us about their own stuff. It's great. Please don't be shy. Yeah, just... just Get it out there. Get it out there. You know what? Just DM it to us. You don't even need to publicly say it's yours and we'll just start talking about it as if it wasn't even you. Yeah. If you don't want us to say, we'll just pretend that we found it ourselves. Yeah. Sneaky. Sneaky, sneaky. Sneaky like a dolphin. Well, thank you for joining us for Series 2. This series has taken us from a period of relative pandemic optimism in the UK through a hardcore lockdown and just about out the other side. It's been a roller coaster, to say the least, but your lovely comments and hilarious science recommendations have made it so much better. They have indeed. And we look forward to seeing you next month for a brand new series of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. FM.